Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 were major attempts to move the United States toward greater inclusiveness and equality, but the methods and impact of the Civil Rights Movement in the over half century since have proved insufficient to bring about the sort of structural changes necessary for what that legislation seemed to promise. In her latest book, America on Fire, the untold history of police violence and black rebellions since the 1960s, Elizabeth Hinton, a Yale University professor of law, history, and African-American studies, and, and one of the country's leading scholars of mass incarceration, offers a deeply researched account of the origins of our continuing national crisis of police violence against black Americans. It's published by Liveright and brings Professor Hinton to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. Your, your subtitle reveals your decision to challenge the common use of the term urban riots to describe the civil disturbances that continue to be a regular part of American life. Do you prefer to call them rebellions or sustained insurgencies? I, I use the term rebellion, but I, I argue that we need to think about the the thousands of, of incidents of collective political violence that emerged in black communities during uh, the, the, the mid to late 60s and into the early 70s as a as a sustained insurgency. What would you consider to be a riot? The attack on the Capitol on January 6th? I think so. I would I, I would call the the attack on the Capitol on the sixth the attack on the Capitol precisely that. I think you know the for most of the twentieth century riots uh, were perpetuated by white vigilante mobs um, against black communities. So you have Springfield in nineteen oh eight, East St Louis in nineteen seventeen. We recently commemorated the hundred year anniversary of the the Tulsa what's called a race massacre. Um, this kind of mob violent action, um, I think you know is is best described as as a riot yes but they haven't they were haven't been labeled as riots no they Although, haven't been labeled as much it was it was in the 60s when uh when, when black people collectively engaged in acts of political violence against exclusionary and repressive institutions um that 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 these these incidents became labeled riot and then with them uh linked to criminal activity and and behavior so um, you say uh, it only can can only be probably understood as rebellions and that calling them riots is a racist trope. Yeah. So, you know, from the outset, really what we think of as beginning this era of rebellion with Harlem in 1964, when a 15-year-old Black high school student was killed by a New York City police officer. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson, you know, reflected on the several days of violence in Harlem, it also uh, spread to, to Bed-Stuy, and then um, th for the remainder of the summer of 64, other cities like Philadelphia and Chicago. And, and Johnson said, you know, this has nothing to do with civil rights, this is linked to crime and juvenile delinquency problems in our cities. It's criminal, it's meaningless, it's lawless. And therefore, the only solution is police, right? When, when Johnson failed to recognize that the, the, the political tactics that, that, that people embraced when, uh, when engaging in this form of protests were uh, very much linked and shared the same grievances as the mainstream civil rights movement. The rebellions like the nonviolent direct action protests of civil rights were of the civil rights movement were calls for 
full political and economic inclusion in American society, protection against white uh, vigilante terrorism, an end to police brutality, and most fundamentally access to decent jobs, educational opportunities, and housing. Now, that was the same President Lyndon Johnson who signed both the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts into law. So was he pressured to do that? And did that set the tone for much of what was to follow by providing advanced justification for the use of force by police? Johnson really the saw- The war on crime, I mean. Yeah, I mean, Johnson saw the war on crime and the war on poverty as, as complementary. Um, and, and he also believed, I mean, he began increasingly saying um, from Harlem onwards that the first civil right um, is the right to safety. And importantly, he sent the Law Enforcement Assistance Act to Congress, which, which began, which opened up a whole new role for the federal government in, in, in local police operations and court systems and the prison system for the first time in U.S. history. Um, he sent that legislation to Congress in March 1965, one week before he sent the Voting Rights Act to Congress. Um, so, you know, Johnson really believed that modernizing American police um, in using federal funds to invest in this effort um, and to essentially create a, an entirely new crime control bureaucracy was an important part of his contributions to domestic policy in general. And, and you know, in many ways, Johnson's simultaneous call for the war on crime and dismantling um, of, of Jim Crow through the Civil Rights Act, um, at least formal Jim Crow, um, and attention to racial discrimination followed this kind of longer historical pattern in the U.S., and that is that every time the bounds of citizenship expand and rights open up to, to African-Americans in particular, new criminal laws and systems of incarceration emerged. So we saw this, you know, in 1865, immediately after the Civil War, um, the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment passed. But there's also the southern states begin to enact black codes and a, that criminalize newly freed people and a convict lease system that ensnares them in a in a penal labor regime. Uh, flash forward 100 years later, and with the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and massive social changes and demographic changes in U.S society, uh, you get the simultaneous call for the war on crime and the expansion and militarization of urban police forces in cities large and small across the United States. Didn't the uh, 1968 Kerner Commission report urge major structural changes in policing and in social welfare policies, employment, health care and more? It received a lot of attention. What happened? Right. So that's the really I mean, that's one of the biggest kind of missed opportunities of the era um, in the middle of the rebellion in Detroit in 67. Johnson called the Kerner Commission to investigate the, the causes of the violence and to, and to suggest solutions. And the Kerner Commission recognized that uh, that that the rebellions were um, a part of socioeconomic isolation and exclusion and, and attempted to draw people's attention to the role of white racism. They didn't use the, the, the term systemic racism, but the ways in which white racism shaped uh, political and economic institutions in the US. And they said, 
okay, you know, if we're serious about preventing this form of violence in the future and really dealing with the root causes, then what's necessary is a, a mobilization of both the public and private sectors to create jobs for low-income Americans of color. You know, what we need is a complete overhaul of urban public schools, not the remedial education programs of the war on poverty. And, and, and to give people, to provide people with decent housing, they said the war on poverty has not gone far enough. The war on poverty does not represent a structural intervention. We need essentially what some members called a Marshall Plan for American cities, billions and billions of dollars worth of investment to actually combat the problem of racial inequality uh, meaningfully. And you well, know, Mitch Johnson McConnell wasn't in the Senate to, to stop that. What happened? <laughs> well, Johnson himself, you know, never, uh, never commented on the report, you know, distanced himself from the conclusions which he thought were too radical. And instead of that job creation program for low-income Americans, we got a job creation program for police in the form of the war on crime. And I think, you know, part of it, part of Johnson, the Johnson administration's and Congress's resistance to bringing about that, that, that kind of structural change that the, the, that the Kerner Commission called for is part of a, a larger resistance on the part of both conservative and liberal policymakers historically to, to bring about the kind of transformations that will disrupt the racial hierarchies that have defined the United States since its founding. You say that calling for law and order immunizes police from accountability and politicians from their failure to address the many social problems that disproportionately affect citizens of color. So should we assume that rebe rebellions will continue unless police are no longer called on to deal with the consequences of awful conditions beyond their control? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really one of the, the important lessons from this history is that um, we have to we have to move beyond police reform, police reform. You know, the, the problem is, um, again, beyond police, as the Kerner Commission drew our attention to the, the problems that that lead to um, to crime and social harm or violence in, in communities are rooted in socioeconomic conditions. And and in the absence of in the absence of structural inner prevention, major structural transformation, um, continually relying on the police to manage the manifestations of poverty and racial inequality as they appear through crime and violence um, has not effectively uh, addressed issues of racial inequality or improved public safety. So, you know, we, we know now, and if you look at, you know, even the what's what's being debated in the George Floyd Justice Act, you know, Usually what's called for in after moments of police violence are, you know, greater training, um, more better, better weapons or, or technology for police um, and banning we, certain practices such as chokeholds. Right. But the officers and, and weeding out the bad apples. Right. Exactly. And the problem is not um, a bad apple. I have a whole chapter in the book that talks about mm. the poison tree that talks about the, the kind of culture of police departments. So, you know, we, we if, if we're serious about addressing these problems, we really have to go beyond police reform. We're not going to be able to train or reform our way out of this. And in many ways, that's what the call for defund is about. It's about how can we think about a new vision for public safety and how might we be able to invest resources differently? Because now, you know, more than 50 years out from the war on crime, we know that investing in police and surveillance and prisons over employment, education, um, and, and healthcare and jobs, et cetera, 
uh, has not effectively addressed violence in the most vulnerable communities, has not kept communities safe. And now it's time for a different policy path that the Kerner Commission um, in 68, you know, had recommended. Well, the alternative, of course, is peaceful demonstrations, but haven't they been rarely sufficient to get much national political attention or to for force policy transformation? Well, I think that's one of the other, you know, really important lessons from this history. And that Martin Luther King himself recognized. He said, you know, that, that, that the success of his own branch of nonviolent direct action protests depended in part on the threat of collective violence should those nonviolent demands not be met. And historically, struggles for racial justice and civil rights have included both nonviolent and violent strains. I mean, even last summer, although the vast, vast majority, 95 percent of the, the protests were entirely peaceful, you know, it, it were the, those fires, the, the violence that we saw in, in places like Minneapolis and Portland and Seattle, that, uh, that that really kind of propelled the discussion about police reform and that turned systemic racism into a new buzzword. So I, I do think, you know, one would hope that policies would be enacted in order to address the, the, the conditions and the inequalities that lead people to feel like they have no other recourse uh, but to take to violent action. But in, in the absence of that, we also know that, that this form of protest um, does serve does serve does serve some sort of pr purpose, and it does seem to get authorities' attention. The problem is that the long-term uh, outcome to both nonviolent and violent protests around racial justice and police brutality has always been, um, you know, more police, more police as the as the solution when the police are the precipitating factor in the first place, which is why we've been stuck in this policy cycle um, since the 1960s. Yeah, that you, you say that the typical response acts of rebellion has been a cycle of more policing, leading to more police violence, leading to further acts of rebellion. Exactly. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Elizabeth Hinton, whose latest book is America on Fire, the untold history of public violence and black rebellion since the 1960s. Um, but hasn't looting been a problem and a reason for more police crackdowns? Well, there, you know, there, there historically, uh, you know, looting and plunder does happen. And in, in, in some of these incidents, we sure, we certainly saw it last summer. I think one of the things that that's different about uh, la the looting that we saw last summer is that it didn't occur in, um, in low income communities that occurred in, in, in upscale communities from Rodeo drive and Beverly Hills to fifth Avenue. Um, in New York City, you know, I think part of part of and, and this is this this also gets to uh, the problem with terminology is that, you know, often, especially the media focuses on acts of looting, acts of vandalism um, and violence instead of, you know, really asking serious questions about what does it mean to live in a society that people feel as though um, you know, they have no other alternative but to, to take this set of action. They have no other or, or, or they feel so excluded and unable to t obtain certain goods that they feel in these in these exceptional moments that they have to take them. I think one thing that's important, too, and this goes back to the question about the kind of relationship between nonviolent and violent protests is that, you know, in in my book, I, I trace more than 2000 um, rebellions and in nearly every city 
the, the collective violent protests emerged after years, if not decades, of nonviolent protests, of demonstrations, of of sending petitions to elected officials, of filing lawsuits um, with little change to socioeconomic conditions. And especially, you know, after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in 68, the, the kind of younger generation who watched the civil rights movement unfold with much promise um, and saw their conditions change little and then saw themselves or experienced being policed in new ways as a result of the war on crime, um, you know, decided to embrace a new form of of, of, of politics and protests rooted in self-defense and, and, and fighting back against institutions that they experience as exclusionary because for, met, for many of them, it seemed that, that the, the kind of nonviolent direct action protests hadn't worked. And, and so those violent tactics included, you know, throwing rocks and bottles at police or setting buildings on fire um, or looting, always in, in a in a context of police violence. And, you know, in what we saw last summer, and even the kind of, if, if you look at the patterns of rebellions in the, in the late sixties and early seventies and in the later 20th century, you know, they always, they start smaller scale. And then when police, again, this, this goes back to the police violence precipitating community violence, when police respond with tear gas and by beating people and, and, seeming, and arresting people for seemingly arbitrary reasons, then the violence itself escalates to burning buildings, to looting. Um, but again, I, I think, you know, the important questions are, you know, what what are the factors that are leading people to engage in this kind of behavior and, and tactics in the first place? Well, you mentioned the uh, the 2000 dates and, and locations in a 25 page timeline in your book between July 1964, April 2001, although there are some years that are missing. Uh, right. I don't remember all of them. How many of them got serious media attention? So that's, you know, that's a kind of this. This is partly why this is called the untold history, because even when I went into researching this book, I kind of um, and in my first book, I carried the assumption that, you know, that that's become kind of the grand narrative. And that is that, you know, the, the rebellion started in 64 in Harlem and that, you know, they kind of peaked during the long, hot summer of 67 with Newark and Detroit. And then the kind of last hurrah was the hundred or so or so that emerged after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in, in April 1968. Um, but what's 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 really interesting is that after the Safe Streets Act is is when we really saw the kind of the 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 peak and and, and sustaining of the rebellions. Of course, Johnson signed the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act into law in June 1968. And this, uh, you know, I mentioned the the Law Enforcement Assistance Act that he that he sent to Congress in '65. The, the legislation three years later made a lot of those programs more permanent and marked, marked the official launch of the war on crime and brought these new federal grants, not just to big cities in the Northeast, which had been the, the targets in the first three years, but to midsize and smaller cities, rural communities across the United States and the Rust Belt and the Sun Belt and the South and in the Northeast and the West. Um, in, in every to every city, large or small, where black people lived in um, segregated and, and unequal conditions, and and this was the period as as these new crime war programs were taking hold across the country, 
that we actually saw the peak. So there were some 300 rebellions between 64 and 68, and nearly two, and, and, and Martin Luther King's Jr.'s assassination in April 68. And between May 1968 and 1972, there were nearly 2,000. Um, and because they occur, they're happening in these smaller cities and covered by the local news, and these smaller police departments are now militarized uh, with armored tanks from Vietnam and bulletproof vests and three-foot batons and M4 and M16 carbine rifles, all of the surplus military weaponry and technology, the National Guard no longer has to be called in when, when a couple of kids get rowdy after police break up a party um, and they no longer become kind of incidents of national interest. And so, you know, it was, th this story wouldn't have been able to be told if I didn't gain access to an archive um, of the records of the Lemberg Center for the Study of Violence that formed shortly after John F. Kennedy was assassinated to study conflicts in American society. Uh, the Lemberg researchers, it was housed at Brandeis University, uh, tried to do quantitative studies and interviews and collected perhaps most importantly newspaper clippings documenting violence from anti-war protests to, uh, to, to conflicts in public schools, to labor disputes, to black rebellion. And I gained access to this archive, which had been previously closed to the public, only available to a small group of researchers. And I encountered boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of these newspaper clippings um, from local newspapers that are small local newspapers that are difficult to find, really showing, again, this, this, this really untold or previously hidden chapter um, in U.S. history. And I think it's especially important that, you know, that, that actually this form of protest peaked you know, after the official launch of the war on crime and really shows how, you know, in its early years, black residents resisted the expansion of policing and surveillance in their communities at every turn. There was a lot of immediate coverage of the rebellions in Detroit in 1967 and in Gary, Indiana, 1968, Miami, 1980, mm -hmm. Los Angeles, 1992, for example. But uh, the point you're making is many occurred in smaller cities like York, Pennsylvania, Cairo, Illinois, Stockton, California and the like. Right. And that and that this is this is this is a national problem. It's not just a big city problem that it's a that it's a policing problem and that it's rooted in the in the power dynamics of um, of policing itself. In uh, the 1980 urban rebellion in the, the Liberty City neighborhood in Miami came in response to a not guilty verdict in the trial of police officers accused of, of fatally assaulting a black motorcyclist the, the year before. The 1992 Los Angeles uprising came in the wake of the Rodney King verdict. The one in Cincinnati in 2001 came after the police there killed an unarmed black man, Timothy Thomas. Uh, it, it, so these are all in response to people feeling that an injustice has occurred. Uh, we might very well have seen something similar with the the, the uh, George Floyd verdict. If uh, it, it actually didn't that verdict come as something of a surprise? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we very rarely see um, police officers be even charged uh, for 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 acts of brutality and killings and the fact that, you know, Derek Chauvin was charged and convicted um, was what was unfortunately um, an exceptional and rare occurrence. Because there was no conviction in the trial of the officer who killed Eric Garner in Staten Island. Right. And that's in New York. 
it's very I mean, because police officers have impunity to kill and state sanctioned violence is, um, you know, is, is accepted. Police have a monopoly on violence, as as they say, it's it's very, very hard to 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 actually um, hold officers accountable or to charge them uh, when they aggress when when they use aggressive, excessive and deadly force. For example, you you uh, talk about what happened in Cairo, Illinois, where relations between the black community and the police got so bad that Time magazine described life there as a war, which featured law enforcement officers terrorizing black residents by firing shots into the local housing projects and, and aiding white vigilantes in threatening them. And that's in Illinois. Yes, and, and that's into the 1970s. Yeah, the story of, of, of Cairo was one that, um, you know, that I weave throughout the book that was that was really haunting to me because Cairo was exceptional in its violence. You know, that, that war, that so-called war that Time Magazine described the violence as lasted between uh, March 1969 and, and through 1972, so for uh, three years. Um, and, and it also is kind of a warning to us about you know the what happens when white supremacy becomes the the defining policy principle um, in a place, and and the the violence in, in Cairo was particularly deadly because, as you mentioned, the the police department and the white vigilante group were were, were deeply deeply in, entwined, and and the white uh, that white vigilante group was rooted in 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 the all white political and economic establishment in Cairo, which was a town at the southernmost tip of Illinois, with um where with just about four thousand residents, where where black residents were just under the majority and completely locked out of political and economic power. And after protesting, um, you know, using sit-ins and petitions and nonviolent demonstrations throughout the 60s in an attempt to gain political and economic power in the city and integrate the city with complete resistance on the part of the white establishment. Um, after black residents in a segregated housing project began to be shot at, um, continually for hundreds of nights a year um, by a white vigilante group with absolutely no recourse from authorities. Uh, black residents both decided to arm themselves in self-defense. I mean, you know, the, the, the shooting got to the point where families were sleeping in bathtubs um, in order to keep the children safe, while also launching a nonviolent um, direct action protest and a boycott of white-owned businesses in the city because uh, you know, black residents said, we're not going to patronize uh, white business owners so that they can then buy bullets to shoot at us with no recourse from from the, the state government, the county government or the federal government. Um, and rather than actually, you know, this went on for years and rather than seed um, any political and economic power to the near black majority, the political, the white political and economic establishment of the town decided to hold on to their to white supremacy. And as a result, the, the businesses closed um, and and, you know, the, the economy of, of Cairo tanked. And I say, you know, this is a warning because um, it, it really shows that, you know, that racism killed the town and that racism and white supremacy is bad for everyone. And, and rather than, you know, preserve their own property values or, um, or, or create a vibrant community where they're with, with mobility, where their own children would want to live and thrive. Um, that establishment said white, you know, chose white supremacy. And as a result, everybody lost. 
Aren't many housing projects largely just segregated neighborhoods? I mean, that's right. And segregated and, and places of concentrated poverty. And you um, write of an instance when the, the teenage residents of a housing project were having a party in Stockton, California in 1968, and two white officers came to shut it down. That was in a housing project? Yes. And, and housing projects like schools were two kind of very, also segregated spaces, right? Two uh, very common places where rebellions occurred. I mean, as sites of concentrated poverty, there are places, especially um, you know, we still see it with policing now. But um, you know, in the in the early war on crime, where where, where surveillance and and police presence uh, loomed large, and you know, the tenants of housing projects themselves were vulnerable to. Uh, getting stopped and frisked, um, having community gatherings disrupted by police, um, people seemingly arrested for arbitrary reasons. And in, in many, you know, um, hundreds upon hundreds of the rebellions that emerged during this period, as in Stockton, happened when police came to break up parties and um, in, in housing projects and residents responded by throwing rocks at police um, in the case of in, in the case of and, and this could escalate. Um, but, 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 but you have to explain why did the police uh, even try to break up the party uh, and tell everybody to disperse? They were in their own space. Right. Uh, they, they, this, the cops actually called for backup. Forty more officers arrived and ordered the, the residents to disperse. Right. I mean, th th this has been, you know, again, kind of part of the logic of American policing, um, right down to the, the era of slave patrols, right? When like one of the duties of slave patrols was to break up slave gatherings, um, in part because the gathering, you know, because so many of the strategies of the war on crime were based on, on this idea of stopping potential crime or potential rioting, right? Gatherings of black people in particular from the, the antebellum era to the present, um, you know, could pose a potential threat of, of rebellion, could could potentially lead to an act of collective violence against the state. And in and in making that assumption and and just, you know, basically um, stopping residents or, or you know or or disrupting residents as they went about their lives. Um, you know, put in motion the self-fulfilling prophecy where, um, you know, especially in the 60s and 70s, people fought back um, against those policing strategies. I think this is one of the big differences between this era, and this is something that you mentioned in, in your earlier comment, you know, the era of rebellion in the 60s and 70s, and then what we saw in, um, in, in Miami and in Los Angeles and in Cincinnati. The rebellions of the late 60s and early 70s were almost always in response to the policing of ordinary everyday activities. Like the Stockton housing project where the party was was broken up. And actually that story is very interesting because um, the, the, the community actually kidnapped two of the police officers and ended up locking them um, in the housing project gymnasium, which was a kind of unique um, tactic that you, you don't see very often um, across rebellions. But, you know, by Miami in 1980 and, and down to the present day, rebellions typically emerge in response to, as you said, exceptional incidents of um, police brutality or grave miscarriages of justice. And, and that is a real kind of difference between the, the civil rights and post-civil rights period and, um, and later in the 20th century and, and into the 21st. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large. This is America. Don't got you slipping on. 
now. Police be tripping now. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. I got the strap. Hey. I gotta carry him. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go into this. We're back with Elizabeth Hinton, whose latest book is America on on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s, published by Livright. You begin your book with the story of the sit-ins at the Woolworths uh, lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1969. Why there? Well, I think, you know, this is a period where we, we see, you know, through, throughout the decade of the 60s, we really see the evolution of um, of protests for racial justice and civil rights shift from being primarily based in the politics of nonviolent protests and direct action pro- protests, the politics of of self-defense and black rebellion. And, you know, that that shift is illustrated very clearly by Greensboro. At the start of the decade, uh, North Carolina A&T students begin the sit-in movement you know, by by forcing the integration of a of a lunch counter at the Woolworths department store. And by the end of the decade, 1969, um, A&T students are engaged in violent confrontation uh, with the police department in the city. Um, at, when they come to the assistance of black high school students at a majority black high school who are demanding um equal rights and, and a black studies curriculum and, um, you know, base, basic demands that shouldn't have been met with the police, but that were met with the police um, and, 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 and mass arrests and students getting tear gassed. Um, and eventually this conflict escalated into the calling of the, of the National Guard um, at North Carolina A&T and, and the, the, the death of a, of a sophomore student there. Um, you know, so, so this, this story in general and what happened in Greensboro, again, just, just, just really shows, um, how, you know, this, this decade within a decade, um, in the context of the war on crime and the lack of, again, you know, fundamental changes, meeting those demands of the, of, of the civil rights movement, we go from, and the increased embrace, em, embracing police as a solution. Um, you know, we go from this, this, this nonviolent direct action moment to anti students continuing to protest, but having it be part of this violent conflict with police that ends in, in, in a death of a student. Another example you cited occurred in Alexandria, Virginia, where a police officer who had a long history of beating black teenagers and calling them colored despite their protests uh, was never disciplined by the police force, but was consistently praised. And although black citizens complained through all the proper channels and engaged in minor protests, nothing was done. But then when a store owner shot and killed a black teen in 1970, the police felt to, to investigate, uh, but that led, finally led to a, a violent rebellion. Right. I mean, you know, the, the story of Alexandria um, and the kind of su- the sustained protests there is really fascinating and also gets to this like this larger issue of, you know, there are there are certain officers who are particularly cruel. Um, in the case of Alexandria, you know, the officer who was involved in um, in beating the, the the black child, you know, had 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 was known by the black community for harassing black youth um, and for and for being particularly aggressive um, with black youth. Black black residents had demanded his ouster um, for years, non 
violently. Um, and as and, and the department did did nothing. Um, and and the, the political and economic elite of Alexandria actually threw a um, through a through a special uh, plated dinner in honor of this officer. Um, and and, you know, what's interesting about Alexandria, too, being kind of a, a, a border city is that, um, you know, part of the, the, the struggle there, you know, really reflected this moment of, you know, you know, a, a, of, a, of a police chief and a department that was transitioning um, from, you know, Jim Crow enforcement, which had been the status quo by the late 60s to um, at least in theory, a move towards integration. Um and and that that ended up playing playing out in the city um, in very interesting ways. But ultimately, um, you know, the, the police department failed, as it, as it did in, in Cairo, to come to the protection um, of black residents and, and justice uh, was not realized. And in, 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 in the case of the, the young high school student who was who was shot by the 7-Eleven owner. You look into the limits and the failures of the civil rights movement. Why have its methods and impact proved insufficient to bring about the sort of structural change necessary for racial equality? Well, I think a lot of that has to do with with in part um, a recognition. You know, we see time and time again uh, from the Kerner Commission on. I mean, that's one of the things I talk about in the book as well, that, you know, very often the Kerner Commission was the high profile national one, but very often after these incidents, including in places like Alexandria, Virginia, uh, what, what were called human relations councils or various task forces would emerge in these cities, usually led by liberal, uh, liberal members, liberal commissioners who would, you know, investigate why these rebellions happen and suggest solutions. And we've known the structural, um, causes and the structural solutions for some time. It's just that um, I think, you know, there's been a real resistance on the part of policymakers to implement them. And I think, you know, especially um, by the 1980s when social welfare programs um, and treatment programs were almost entirely disinvested from that, you know, there's been a real, there's a real pushback to this idea that um, of, of investing in in the social welfare apparatus, especially for low income people of color, um, and ideas about kind of quote unquote personal responsibility uh, have prevailed. So you know, I think that the challenge before us, if we're if we're really serious about bringing about this this kind of transformation, it's going to take uh, it's a it's a battle of hearts and minds and and we have to build the kind of political will that's going to make it undeniable and necessary well there seems to be a total split in this country john lewis was celebrated for his lifetime achievements in the last years of his life before he died at the same time that we have i think it's 48 states now uh having legislation either enacted or proposed that would limit the voting rights of people of color. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think there, there, there's a large, we're an extremely divided country and there's a large contingent of people that are fundamentally anti-democratic. And now we're going back, you know, again, in response to the insurgency of last summer and, and you know, the fact that 
I think last summer also demonstrated that that most people are want to bring about a different kind of governance. Uh, most people want their taxpayer dollars allocated um, not to not towards punitive policies, but to policies that are going to more effectively address these problems and get to the root causes. Um, and and a, and a growing awareness about the history of racial inequality and oppression, which is why critical race theory is also coming in, um, under attack, and have since mobilized to try to, um, to to try to preserve their power and enact their very unpopular policies. Um, I also think it's 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 in part a response to the, the the demographic changes in the U.S. I think it was in 2019 that the majority of people under the age of 16 were people of color in this country, and that by 2050, uh, white people will be the minority. And I think part of what we're seeing. The, the kind of mobilization of, of white supremacy and the, these new attacks on voting rights laws in Congress is a is a real response to that and a and a and a, and a losing battle on the part of the minority um, who 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 want to preserve this outdated mode of governance and retain um, again these the these 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 racist uh, institutions and power structures. But, but what is ultimately achieved by vilifying critical race theory? Uh, in in the end, it isn't going to change anything, is it? Well, I mean, I I think if if it's successfully vilified and and by critical race theory, I mean, I, I think you know it's it's kind of become shorthand for anything that um, that that centers the history of racial oppression and racism in the development of U.S. institutions, which we know is 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 true and central. Um, to to uh, to political and economic outcomes um, in this country. So anything that doesn't you know recognize that is 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 obscuring uh, our true history. And so if if that is successfully done, um, then it then it's going to be much harder to to confront historical inequalities, racial and class inequalities, and gender inequalities, um, and and to be able to to foster a more inclusive society. I mean, it's it's a very limited view of history. History that that can be a weapon um, and that can be dangerous and that's rooted in in can continued white supremacy. Um, so well, I, since I, I, I yeah. go ahead. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. I, I, it just seems to me that pretty much every day I see another news story about uh, a cop stopping a black kid or the traffic stop or somebody walking down the road and being stopped or sitting on on uh, his or her porch and uh, and there were problems. And I, I thought if I were a police officer today, the last thing I would do is pull out my gun or my taser. But that doesn't seem to have stopped any of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think part of it is, you know, th there are so many police have been charged, uniformed officers with guns, and usually officers who don't live in the communities that they're charged with protecting and keeping safe. So there's a lot of mistrust and fear on both sides. Come into a situation that doesn't require the presence of a uniformed armed officer. I mean, you know, for a traffic stop, for instance, a traffic stop that led recently, um, for example, to the the killing of, of of Dante Wright, who was pulled over, I think, the day or the day after the Chauvin uh, verdict for a having an air freshener um, hanging in his rearview mirror. Again, something that that would never somebody would never be pulled over for in a in a suburban middle class or white community um, was stopped by an officer 
and ended up dead. And there's just no reason why you need to have a gun in that situation. There's no reason why for many mental health crises, um, you need to have a gun. I mean, part of this but too- it, but, is, but if we didn't have videos, we probably wouldn't even know about many of these things in the past. Qualified immunity protected police officers from even being questioned. Right, right. And I think I think that's that is one of the changes too in this kind of in, in the in the in the period of protests that began to emerge during the second um term of of Barack Obama's presidency. And that is that, you know, we all have these cameras in our pockets now. So, you know, the brutality that residents in targeted low-income communities of color have been talking about for years is now and 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 that was also you know dismissed um as fiction i mean i can't tell you in in so much of my research just seeing how officials dismiss ongoing complaints about police brutality again complaints that were made before rebellions actually took off without being recognized or no recourse we now have this proof um for, for, for white Americans and those who live outside these over-policed and under-protected communities to see that this is actually a real problem. This is commonplace. And even the videos that we have um, only scratch the surface. And it's unfortunate that it, that it takes having this kind of proof um, for people to recognize that this is a systemic problem um, and, that, and that policing itself, um, as we know it in this country, is fundamentally flawed. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Elizabeth Hinton, whose latest book is America on Fire, the untold history of uh, police violence and black rebellion since the 1960s. It's published by LiveRight. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Proposals to defund the police and abolish prisons have now entered the national conversation in a way that you couldn't have imagined just a couple of years ago. Um, but And some local municipalities have pledged to reallocate funds to designated for punishment to education, child care, health care, and anti-poverty efforts. But how likely is all of that to really happen? Yeah, so that's the question. And I think it gets it gets to that larger conversation we were having about building the political will, because, um, you know, and the phrase defunding the police has caused a lot of trouble because people imagine then that if there's a crime, we won't have any police. Right. I mean, it's really about thinking of a different conception of public safety and a different mode of governance that is going to instead of investing in police and and surveillance and incarceration invest in employment and education um, and and various social welfare provisions from from housing to uh, to healthcare for people. Again, I mean the basic things that the Kerner Commission called for. It's saying if we want to if we want meaningful public safety, we have to look beyond the police. I mean one of the things that you know that that my research in America on fire and in my first book from the war on poverty to the war on crime really demonstrates is that. You know, after more than half a century of these punitive policies, it hasn't worked to promote uh, safety in many communities. And now it's time to try something different. Now is time for a new approach, which is what I think defund is saying. Defund is is 
um, is saying, you know, we have to make a different set of investments. Let's have a, a, a robust crime prevention program rather than a crime control program, because policing has um, in many ways escalated or precipitated violence rather than um, rather than resolving it. What about abolishing prisons? What would be the alternative? Well, I think, again, if if we imagine different kinds of supports that we can give to people, I mean, I think especially, you know, as the the kind of social welfare system was completely gutted uh, by officials at all levels of government, we don't have a robust treatment system for mental health or drug abuse problems um, or, or the issue of homelessness. And, and prison has become this kind of warehouse solution to deal with a whole host of, of social problems. Um, if we give people treatment, um, if we provide people with, 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 with robust mental health programs and social welfare programs, you know, there are other institutions we can establish to make, as Angela Davis said, um, prisons obsolete. You know, the prison itself is a is a modern phenomenon that was seen, you know, that was enacted as as kind of a, a reform to, um, to to capital punishment. And at this point in the United States, it has taken the form of warehousing um, entire groups of people, mostly racially marginalized citizens and, and people who are poor and undereducated. Um, and again, has not functioned as an institution that 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 promotes public safety. In fact, in many ways, you know, prisons are criminogenic. Um, they create crime. Recidivism is is a is a real problem. Once you go to prison, you're 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 very likely to go back um, and you know, we can think about an entirely different system that's not based on the on the kind of principle of retribution that the U.S. criminal legal system is based, but the 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 the, the principle of repair. Um, and again, you know, envisioning this kind of society is going to take um, education. It's going to take reckoning with. Uh, you know, the, the history of this country and how race, racial and class and gender um, relations have shaped that history, not trying to hide that history or ban that history. Um, and it's going to take, you know, all of us realizing, and this is, you know, in part why I think that that Cairo story is such a, a good lesson that, you know, that that division, um, that inequality, that racism hurts all of us and that there, we, we have so much more in common than that which divides us. Um, well, we, you know, uh, we have very little time left and a listener has written this. Jeffrey has written this and I just uh, if you could devote a, a, a minute or two to it, I'd appreciate it. He asks, how does one circumvent the idea espoused by very many conservatives and others that the role of education is to turn our students proud of their nation and accepting its national myths rather than teaching them the truth of the past? Didn't well, Socrates, he said, wrestle with that? That's a great, that's a, that's a fantastic question. You know, I think we, we need to recognize that education is key to a vibrant democracy and, and presenting, um, you know, in, in order to fully celebrate our country, right? It's important to, to, to reckon with and, and recognize both the good and the bad. Um, and it's important to understand what happened in the past so that we can understand where we actually are today and um, you know, understand the conditions in, in, in our present to then create a better future. Um, and if, if, if it's essentially historical propaganda 
that very consciously leaves out um, entire slices of the story or reframes the story on a, on, you know, continuing a, a kind of myth um, that isn't true. We're not going to be able to fully see ourselves. So actually being patriotic and loving one's country is, is, should be seen as, as reckoning with, um, you know, it's, it's true development and the mistakes it made and as, as well as the things that it did right. And let's get rid of critical race theory because uh, it, it's an embarrassment. Right. I mean, that's again, you know, that's if 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 we're truly going to be, you know, the best country that we can be, if we're truly going to be and, you know, live up to our founding principle of equality, um, you know, that's going to require us to confront um, the, the way that oppression of, of, of groups of people has shaped uh, political and economic and so development and social relations um, in, in, in the United States. Elizabeth Hinton is a Yale University professor of law, history, and African-American studies. Her latest book, the one we've been discussing, is America on Fire, the Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion Since the 1960s. It's published by Live Right, and it's been my great pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you'd like to hear more of our shows, and can, you can access our archive of over 500 interviews at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are available. You can also find links to all of our past programs at leonardlopateatlarge.com. And if you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support this station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online right now to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number two, WBAI.org, or by calling 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950, to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit hard financially by the pandemic, and a lot of our longtime supporters have had to drop their support for the station, which is why we're asking anyone who is able in this time of crisis to step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep community radio and London located at large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are 100% reliant on listener support. And the way to do that is, again, call 212-209-2950 right now or go online to give to WBAI.org. Becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a particularly great way to support WBAI without having to shell out a lot of money at any one time. And as I said, you can become a BAI buddy or make a contribution of any amount by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. Zero. To everyone who's already supporting the station in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, at whatever level you're doing it, thank you. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when author and Vanity Fair correspondent Brian Burrow will discuss a new book called Forget the Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth. We'll see you then. <laughs>